0: Lots of us have questions when we come to these chapters. Uh, I think we could have carried on that exercise for a wee while longer. Um, some of them are questions about my relationship with God. So, why don't I speak in tongues? Uh, what is prophecy? How do I desire greater gifts? There, Some of our questions are um, sort of purely theological, but for many of us our questions are, Am I missing out on a particular spiritual experience that would give me a richer, deeper relationship with God? Um, But the interesting thing is that what Paul is writing here is neither designed to answer theological questions nor designed to address my personal desire for a richer relationship with God. The issues raised in this chapter are about our experience of God together. Not just what is it like for me to know God, but what is it like for me to know God as part of a family of believers. It's significant that at the heart of this section is chapter 13, a great chapter on loving one another. And it's also important, just as we dive in, to remember Paul is not sitting in his study writing down a definitive guide to spiritual gifts, everything I know and how the church should act for all of church history, point one. He is addressing specific issues at a specific church in a specific time. And so we've got to make sure we understand what questions he's answering, if we're going to understand what he's writing. Uh, We see throughout the letter, so if you um, see chapter 12, like chapter 7 begins now about. In other words, he's answering questions the church has sent to him. And over the years, uh, these chapters have proved something of a soft play area for theological fruit cakes of various different varieties. But what I want us to do is uh, not to drill down deeply into any one bit, but to skate across the surface, just to get a, a broad understanding of what's going on so that uh, when you and I uh, want to follow things up, as I guess many of us will, uh, we have a sort of overview of these chapters so that when we study bits of it, we're less likely to make uh, mistakes. Um, so that's basically the aim. There's no way we'd be able to go in depth on three chapters in, uh, in just over half an hour. But hopefully we'll, we'll get um, the principles and the context so that you and I can work things out properly in the coming days and weeks. And the central issue here is what does a spirit-filled church look like? What does a spirit-filled church look like? Which is, uh, verse 1, about the gift of the Spirit, brothers and sisters, I don't want you to be uninformed which was a massive smackdown, because they thought they knew everything there was to be known. And he's saying, I don't want you to be completely blind ignorant about these things. But Paul, we know everything. Yeah, whatever. Um, you see, the big issue that Paul has, in summary with them, and it's an issue that's not just a Corinth, it's also a London issue, I think, a 21st century London, as well as a 1st century Corinth issue. Spiritual gifts are not about the thing I do that makes me spiritually fulfilled. They are the things I do that builds up the church. It is not about me and my expressing myself, my growing in my relationship. It is about me looking out to others and their needs. And we need a radical change of perspective. These chapters are not about me finding spiritual fulfillment as I discover a particular gift. They are about me building up and serving the people sat next to me right now. Okay, uh, what is the Corinthian context then? Um, What's going on? If Corinth was a football player, it would be Suarez or Balotelli. Extravagantly gifted, petulant, selfish and very immature. If you don't understand football, don't worry. Um, uh, Throughout 1 Corinthians, we learn that they are basically in love with anything that is impressive, and powerful. They've got no time for sacrificial service and humility and ridiculous things like that. Why would you want to live like that? It's all about look at me instead of look to Jesus. And I wonder whether this is part of what Paul spoke of. Do you remember that weird verse in Philippians 1 where Paul talks about some preach Christ out of selfish ambition? What on earth does that mean? I wonder if it's this sort of attitude as part of it. Everything in Corinth is done for me and my glory, not for Christ and the benefit of others. Unsurprisingly, the Corinthians judge how spiritual a person is by how spectacular their gifts are. And in particular, for them, it boils down to tongues. Uh, The truly spiritual Christians are those who speak in tongues during the meeting. Now, at this point, we need to just pause. What, What does the New Testament mean by the word tongues? Well, tongues is just the Greek word for languages. That's all it is, the Greek word for languages. In Acts 2, uh, God's trying to get into the skulls of people who've spent all their life thinking the Jews are the people of God. This is God's purposes in the world. He's trying to get into their skulls. No, no, the gospel is for all people. And so what does he do as he pours the Spirit on the church? What does he do when he tells them the Spirit is the Spirit to help you witness about Christ? He enables them, miraculously to speak, a whole load of different languages. Small clue, Hint, you're meant to go out to the nations. The message of Jesus is not for you, it's for the nations. So they're not speaking a sort of heavenly language no one understands in Acts 2. They're speaking the gospel in French and Swahili and Polish and Danish, in all the different languages of the the nations around, telling them about the glories of the Lord Jesus Christ, so that the apostles would get, you're supposed to go out and tell everybody else and so that there would be a real kickstart to the missionary movement in the church. Um, Now, chapter 12, verse 7, summarizes the whole point of the gifts of the Spirit. Now, to each one, the manifestation of the Spirit... Sorry, um, I do need to come back, don't I? There's There's a sort of indication here, though, in chapter 13, that... Um, there may also have been tongues, may, there may have been some people speaking in a sort of heavenly language that no one did understand, because he talks, if I speak in the in the tongues of men or of angels, but this is the only other place tongues is mentioned in the New Testament other than Acts, and everywhere in Acts is just foreign languages, so just make sure we don't have a weird understanding of tongues that's more informed by church culture than by what the Bible actually says. So uh, there we go. Um Tongues, foreign languages, to send them out in mission. Uh, And uh, and maybe some sort of heavenly language that people didn't understand, but uh, we'll come on to that. Uh, 12.7, if we jump back into the passage, summarizes the whole point of the gifts of the Spirit. Now to each one, the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. So the Holy Spirit and the gifts that he brings are not given so that I can show off. They're not given for separating Christians into, okay, who are the super spiritual first class and who are the sort of cattle class Christians. They're for unity through serving others. So if we find that um, the way spiritual gifts are exercised are causing a church to feel like there's a hierarchy and division, then everything's gone wrong. Uh, so chapter 12 uh, is all about unity and diversity. and Verses 1 to 11, no one is superior because the Holy Spirit gives gifts for the good of others. So verse 1, don't want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about gifts of the Spirit. You know that when you were pagan, somehow or other you were influenced and led astray by dumb idols. Therefore, I want you to know that no one who is speaking by the Spirit of God says, Jesus be cursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord, except by the Spirit. So Adam, you're going to get an answer to your question. It seems so mundane, An ordinary compared with can you speak in a heavenly language or can you speak a language you've never learned to say Jesus Christ is Lord. But if we are spiritually dead, natural born enemies of God, to really and truly from the heart turn and say Jesus Christ is Lord, I submit to him, I trust in him is the most dramatic, awesome, epic miracle of all. And so he says fundamentally, this proves the presence of the Holy Spirit. All who trust in Jesus Christ truly have the Holy Spirit. He doesn't mean anybody who, you know, if a, if an atheist reads those words, that proves they have the Holy Spirit. Of course he doesn't. He means anybody who says that truly has the Holy Spirit. Uh, three things to note then from 4 to 11 as he explains um, spiritual gifts. They're gifts, they're for the good of others, God is sovereign in giving them. They're gifts, they're for the good of others, God is sovereign in giving them. Uh, they're gifts, not rewards. Verses 4 to 6. There are different kinds of gifts. The same Spirit distributes them. There are different kinds of service, but the same laws. Different kinds of working, but in all of them and in every one, it is the same God at work. The word translated gifts in verse 4 is charismata, from which we get uh, charismatic. It's just the same word, actually, that appears in the New Testament. Is roughly the same word that we use for grace. A free, undeserved gift. And it covers all God's gifts of grace. So in the New Testament, our salvation is described as a charismata. Back in 1 Corinthians 7, 7, marriage and singleness are charisma, gifts of grace. So it just means an undeserved gift. Secondly, spiritual gifts are given to build up others, 7 to 10. Now to each one, the manifestation of the spirit is given for the common good. To one there is given through the Spirit a message of wisdom, to another a message of knowledge by means of the same spirits, to another faith by the same spirits, to another gifts of healing by that one spirit, to another miraculous powers, to another prophecy, to another distinguishing spirits, to another speaking in different kinds of tongues, and to still another the interpretation of tongues. All these are the work of one and the same Spirit, and he distributes them to each one just as he determines. Whatever gifts God has given you, He gave them to you for the benefit of the other people in this room and the world outside. Thirdly, the gifts are from God. There are different kinds of service, but the same Lord, verse 5. Verse 4, the same Spirit distributes them. Verse 11, all these are the work of one and the same Spirit, and he distributes them to each one just as he determines. Therefore, there can never, ever, ever, Ever be pride or boasting about the gift that we have. God is sovereign. He gives them as He determines. We must never give the impression in church that those who teach the Bible in sermons or small groups as KG leaders are somehow on a higher spiritual plane. God is sovereign. God gave some people in this room particular gifts to teach the Bible just because God needed somebody to do that job in the church. He could just as easily have given uh, those of us with Bible teaching gifts the gift of extreme generosity or administration or the particular gift of faith that's spoken about here like George Muller had to, to live without physical means. Or he could have given uh, the musical gifts to play in the band. God could have given any of those gifts to us. It doesn't mean, well, you're special because God gave you that gift. It doesn't work like that. Just as none of us deserve God's free gift of salvation, so none of us deserve the gifts of the Spirit that He's given each of us. All are equal. I mean, imagine an orchestra where the musicians thought, you know what, the most important job is conducting. It's the conductor who is, you know, the key person. So I think we should all be conductors. Um, I had Aaron here last weekend just telling me there are. Um, ensembles where they all do that. Like, of course there are. <laughs> there would be in Aaron's world. <laughs> in a real world where idiots like I live. The, the point of an orchestra is music happens. And no music can happen unless there is a conductor and a whole load of people playing different instruments. It defeats the entire purpose. And God has given a variety of gifts to this room, to this church, so that all that God wants to happen in the church would happen. Now, we probably don't think we're the sort of church that would elevate the gift of tongues, so we immediately jump and apply these verses to uh, Bible-teaching gifts. And it's right to make sure we don't elevate um, things like Bible-teaching gifts wrongly. But I wonder whether we don't actually need to be careful that we don't idolise the gift of tongues without realising it. Because I often hear people say, or talk as if, I wonder if I'm missing out because I don't pray in tongues. But I have never, ever, ever heard somebody say, I just wonder if I might be missing out because I don't have the gift of administration or celibacy. Remarkable. Spoken of in the same way, another gift of the Spirit. But we we kind of elevate some in a way that we don't with others. And I just wonder, it's just worth asking yourself, are there certain gifts I've elevated in my mind, and I wish I could have them because... They would make me feel like I was just a more advanced Christian, basically, without sounding too crass. I'd love, actually, the respect I'd get and the way that others would talk to me if I had that gift. Stop it. It's sinful. No one earns their gifts. They're a gift. You don't earn them any more than you earn salvation. And don't elevate any other pathetic sinner just because they have the particular gift you'd like. Secondly, uh, no one is dispensable because the Holy Spirit makes us all one body. And this is the flip side of verses 1 to 11. If verses 1 to 11 is no one is superior, verses 12 to 30, no one is dispensable. And the first two verses uh, re-emphasize the unity and diversity. So verse 12, just as a body, though one, has many parts, but all its many parts form one body, so it is with Christ. Christ. For we were all baptized by one spirit, so as to form one body, whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free. And we were all given the one spirit to drink. So the body is made up, not of one part, but of many. In other words, we're like the different parts that make up a human body. And because we're all united in Christ, we are united with each other. Despite (coughs) our diversity of character and gifting, we are one body. And that leads to the second point, which is because the Spirit has given us diverse gifts, everyone's needed, and no one is dispensable. Uh, we won't read all the way through verses 14 um, to 26, but we'll just dip in and out as we go. So 14, and so the body is not made up of one part, but of many. And then all the various uh, bits, we'll go into them in just a second, but jump down to the conclusion. verse twenty. Halfway through verse 24, God has put... The body together, giving greater honour to the parts that lacked it. So there should be no division in the body, but its parts should have equal concern for each other. If one part suffers, every part suffers. If one part is honoured, every part rejoices. So it seems that what was going on in Corinth is that um, they thought that if you didn't have certain high profile gifts, you didn't matter. It's probably not those with the gifts who thought others didn't matter. I think it was probably more that those who didn't have those gifts felt like they didn't matter but they're completely wrong. You're not a second-class Christian if you don't speak in tongues or you don't have Bible-teaching gifts or whatever it is. Just as a human body needs all the different parts to function properly, so does the church. And because all the parts are needed, no part can be despised as unimportant. Think about your bottom, for instance. It is not a very glamorous part of the body. I'm not being crass. Paul explicitly goes to the the less honourable parts of the body. Um, in this passage, but your bottom is a pretty ordinary bit of your body. It's very unsophisticated, especially compared with your eyes. Eyes see things. Eyes can process light. Your bottom just sits there. (laughs) So imagine your bottom decided, I'm going to change and become a pair of giant eyeballs. (laughs) Now, it would look ridiculous for a start. Not that anybody would see it. But more importantly, you wouldn't be able to sit down Because bottoms may not be complicated and able to process light waves, but they're relatively tough and resilient. And so they can take the weight of your body while you sit down. Eyes are very sensitive. Eyeballs are not great for sitting on. (laughs) You wouldn't be able to sit down unless you had a bottom rather than a pair of eyes. If your feet became tongues, you get the picture. (laughs) Instead, instead, verse 18... (coughs) In fact, God has placed the parts of the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. If they were all one part, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts but one body. God designed the human body with a variety of organs so that the whole thing would work. And God has designed the church with a whole variety of gifts so that the body of Christ works. And verses 14 to 20 are an explicit encouragement to those of us who feel unspiritual and ungifted. You matter to God, and you are desperately needed by your church. Even if you feel unappreciated and unspiritual. Even if you feel like the things you can do are very mundane and ordinary, and actually there are a whole lot of other people who can do the same things I can do, and they can do them better. The point is, the sovereign God chose to give you the gifts he gave you, and he chose to put you in this church, which means... He disagrees. Either he's wrong or you're wrong. And here's a clue. <laughs> when, I, when I have those sorts of decisions to work out, so far in life I've always discovered it's God who's in the right and I'm doing the wrong. And I'll bet you it is this time as well. <coughs> God wants you here with your gifts. And God thinks this church needs your gifts right now. So verse 21 to 26. If you are involved in the sort of upfront ministries that people easily look up to, do not be so foolish as to look down on others or to think that you're more important. And those with less glamorous gifts are just as vital to the church as those who have upfront gifts. That's the first encouragement. Don't feel unspiritual or ungifted. You matter to God and you're desperately needed by your church. Secondly, the second implication, you cannot have lone ranger Christians. God designed you incomplete. He designed you so you could not grow to fulfilment and maturity without the people around you. Christians are like Lego bricks. You know, We're an entire individual on our own, but we can never be fulfilled on our own. It's like football. You can have a football, you can kick it, you can call yourself a footballer, but you're not really playing football as long as you're on your own. You need another group of people to play football together. You're missing the whole point while you're on your own. People often say to me, I don't need to go to church to be a Christian. I find the most gracious response is, yes, you do. (laughs) Um, You see, sin is all about independence from God and other people, turning inwards to myself in self-preservation and self-determination. But when we turn back to God, we turn away from self-dependence. And every time God brings us into relationship with himself, he brings us into relationship with his family, with other people. I have never, ever, ever met a Christian who is healthy and growing, who is not a deeply committed member of a church. I have never met a Christian who is growing and healthy, who is not a deeply committed member of a church. Sometimes when people say, I don't need to be a member of a church to be a Christian, A more helpful question to ask them in response is, how would you say you're growing in your relationship with God and his people at the moment? It's a pretty hard one to answer if you're not part of a church. Okay, given that gifts are given for the building up of the church, the key question becomes not what are my gifts, but what needs doing in this church? What needs doing in this church? Remember, we are stewards of our gifts. We were looking at Matthew 25 a few weeks back in church. One day we'll stand before the Lord Jesus Christ and we'll give an account to him for how we've used the talents that he's given us. And you and I are here to serve others and to make the most of what God has given us. I said before, uh, when you hear an announcement at church, it's time for ministry of the Holy Spirit. That it should be time to open your Bible because that's how God speaks. It's equally true that when people say, it's now time for a time of ministry of the Holy Spirit, it might be time to close your Bible and to put it down. And to roll up your sleeves and help with the washing up. Or to fill in a giving form. Or to help the musicians lug the gear around. Or to offer to look after some hyperactive small child so a harassed mum can have a coffee and pray with a friend. Or, 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 or. All of which makes verse 31 rather intriguing. Now, eagerly, desire the greater gifts. Hasn't he just spent an entire chapter establishing that we're all equal, and everything's done for the building up of the church, and now he ruins the whole thing with an annoying verse that makes no sense? To understand the greater gifts, we need to move on to chapter 13. So someone, I believe, is going to come up and give you a break from my voice and read chapter 13, and it's Will. (coughs) Not only do you get a break from my voice, you get the lilting brogue of a Scottish
1: accent. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Chapter 13. And now I will show you the most excellent way. If I speak in, in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor, and surrender my body to the flames, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient, love is kind, it does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud, it is not rude, it is not self-seeking, it is not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs, When I was a child, I talked like a child, I thought like a child, I responded like a child. When I became a man, I put childish ways behind me. Now we see but a poor reflection as in a mirror, then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And now these three remain, faith, hope and love, but the greatest of these is love.
0: If ever a chapter of the Bible has been used out of context, it's this one. If a couple ever tell you before their wedding, we were reading 1 Corinthians 13 and just thought this is the message we want at our wedding, then you may smile knowingly, because what they're basically saying is that the most appropriate chapter of the Bible for us is one about a bunch of people who are so selfish, self-centered, and self-seeking that they cannot possibly get on, and they need a stinging rebuke from the gospel, um, if that's what you want to say about your relationship at your wedding, fine. <laughs> uh, but what it does say is beautiful. And put briefly, the message of chapter 13 is this. The hallmark of true spirituality is not impressive-sounding exotic tongues or loud prophetic utterances. It is sacrificial love. Why? Why is sacrificial love a better indicator of the presence of the Holy Spirit than dramatic, amazing, miraculous things. Because it is sacrificial love that marked out the life of Christ. Judas Iscariot, from what we can tell, performed miracles. Because at various points we're told about all the disciples performing miracles. The Bible often talks about false miracles and false prophets. But the Bible never ever talks about false sacrificial love. The truest measure of whether we have the Spirit of Christ is whether we have the love of Christ. Quick maths test from round one last night. What's five minus one? You're all wrong. Some of you knew you'd be wrong and so you didn't answer. Uh, The answer is... What is the answer according to verses 1, 2, 3? 5 minus 1 is 0. Nothing. If you have all these five great gifts but you don't have love, you have nothing. Zilch. Nada. Christian service and gifts count for nothing if they're not expressed in love. It does not matter how extravagant your gifting is. If you don't have Christ's love, it's worth nothing at all. You could preach the gospel at an evangelistic rally and a million people be converted, but if you have no real love for Jesus and no self-sacrificial love for other people, in God's eyes you are nothing. Jonathan Edwards, the theologian, said, It is love that makes the church like heaven, not gifts. It is love that makes the church like heaven, not gifts. And Paul puts chapter 13 here to make it abundantly clear that true spirituality is sacrificially loving one another. The fundamental principle to apply in working out how to exercise our gifts is love. The fundamental thing to work out as we try to eagerly desire the greater gifts is, how do I love the people around me better? You know, think about the Church at Corinth, an ungodly, unseemly race at the start of the service to get to the stage first so that I can be the one who prophesies, uh, that I can speak in a tongue no one's heard before. Everybody's showing off, trying to shout loudest, trying to be the biggest one. And those who don't have those gifts, just seething the resentment that they don't and the others do. And instead, Paul says, love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy does not boast, it is not proud, it is not dishonouring of others, it is not self-seeking, it is not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs, love does not delight in evil but rejoices with the truth, it always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. You want to know what a church for the Spirit looks like? It is a church that loves one another. And then in chapter 14, he applies what this means. How is it we understand verse 31 of chapter 12, eagerly desiring the greater gifts? What does it mean to to live as a church full of love for one another when it comes to spiritual gifts? The answer is in chapter 14, follow the way of love and eagerly desire the gifts of the Spirit, especially prophecy. Now I believe someone's going to come and read the rest of the chapter for us. Yes, thank you,
2: James. Chapter 14. Follow the way of love and eagerly desire spiritual gifts, especially the gift of prophecy. For anyone who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men, but to God. Indeed, no one understands him. He utters mysteries with his spirit. But everyone who prophesies speaks to men for their strengthening, encouragement and comfort. He who speaks in a tongue edifies himself, but he who prophesies edifies the church. I would like every one of you to speak in tongues, but I would rather have you prophesy. He who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless he interprets, so that the church may be edified. Now, brothers, if I come to you and speak in tongues, what good will I be to you unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or word of instruction? Even in the case of lifeless things that make sounds, such as the flute or harp, how will anyone know what tune is being played, unless there is a distinction in the notes? Again, if the trumpet does not sound a clear call, who will get ready for battle? So it is with you. Unless you speak intelligible words, with your tongue, how will anyone know what you are saying? You will just be speaking into the air. Undoubtedly, there are all sorts of languages in the world, Yet none of them is without meaning. If then I do not grasp the meaning of what someone is saying, I'm a foreigner to the speaker and he is a foreigner to me. So it is with you. Since you are eager to have spiritual gifts, try to excel in gifts that build up the church. For this reason, anyone who speaks in a tongue should pray that he may interpret what he says. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. So what shall I do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will also pray with my mind. I will sing with my spirit, but I will also sing with my mind. If you are praising God with your spirit, how can one who finds himself among those who do not understand say amen to your thanksgiving, since he does not know what you are saying? You may be giving thanks well enough, but the other man is not edified. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you, But in the church, I would rather speak five intelligible words to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. Brothers, stop thinking like children. In regard to evil, be infants, but in your thinking, be adults. In the law it is written, though through men of strange tongues and through the lips of foreigners, I will speak to this people. But even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Tongues then are a sign not for believers but for unbelievers. Prophecy, however, is for believers and not for unbelievers. So if the whole church comes together and everyone speaks in tongues and some who do not understand or some unbelievers come in, will they not say that you are out of your mind? But if an unbeliever or someone who does not understand comes in while everybody is prophesying, he will be convinced by all that he is a sinner and will be judged by all. And the secrets of his heart will be laid bare, so he will fall down and worship God, exclaiming, God is really among you. What then shall we say, brothers? When you come together, everyone has a hymn or a word of instruction, a revelation, a tongue or an interpretation. All of these must be done for the strengthening of the church. If anyone speaks in a tongue, two or at the most three should speak, one at a time, and someone must interpret If there is no interpreter, the speaker should keep quiet in the church and speak to himself and God. Two or three prophets should speak, and the others should weigh carefully what is said. And if a revelation comes to someone who is sitting down, the first speaker should stop. For you can all prophesy in turn, so that everyone may be instructed and encouraged. The spirits of prophets are subject to the control of prophets. For God is not a God of disorder, but of peace. As in all the congregations of the saints, women should remain silent in the churches. They are not allowed to speak, but must be in submission, as the law says. If they want to inquire about something, they should ask their own husbands at home, for it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in the church. Did the word of God originate with you, or are you the only people it has reached? If anybody thinks he is a prophet or spiritually gifted, let him acknowledge what I am writing to you is the Lord's command. If he ignores this, he himself will be ignored. Therefore, my brothers, be eager to prophesy, and do not forbid speaking in tongues, but everything should be done in a fitting and orderly way. Probably in our minds, a chapter that raises as many questions as it an answers. Um,
0: <laughs> <laughs> we'll we'll cover some of the things. We won't be able to cover everything, but uh, you should have my email on them, on the church. Please do ping me emails if you've got questions about it. I think the aim, actually, is to try and set up a little... Uh, uh, account where we'll, um, if you ping me emails with questions from these chapters and from the weekends, uh, people from the first weekend are also doing the same, and then we'll post answers to some of the big questions um, on the website. Okay, um, what does it mean if we love each other for the exercise of our gifts? The first thing, again, throughout this chapter is um, the purpose is to build others up. Verses 3 to 5, verse 12, verse 17... Verse 26, verse 31. Do it in turn so that everyone may be instructed and encouraged. We use our gifts to build others up. And we do that by seeking prophecy, not tongues. Why does he say that? It's clear he's not anti tongues So 14, 18, he says he prays in tongues regularly as part of his private devotions. So tongues are good for your own relationship with God. And by all means, pray for that gift yourself. But verse 19 He's very clear. Uh, in church, I would rather speak five intelligible words to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue, a foreign language. He says tongues are fine, but only, verse 27 to 28, if there's an interpreter. The point is, if we love each other, we want to build each other up. And how on earth can I be built up if you speak a language I don't understand? Tongues are as much used to others at church as if I preach in Swahili. Just no one can understand. Uh, what though is prophecy that he says that's better than tongues? Now, prophecy refers to clear, understandable communication of God's truth. We saw this a little bit yesterday. Prophecy includes preaching of the gospel acts too. And the section about visitors coming to church, verses 20 to 25, makes a similar point. So it's interesting, people get this all wrong. Some people say we should have lots of tongues in church because Paul says here that tongues are a sign for unbelievers, Verse 22. But when Paul says a sign for unbelievers, he means a sign of judgment. They can't understand it, and so they walk away. Whereas, if they hear prophecy, he says, if they hear the word of God um, proclaimed clearly, they'll be convicted of their sin, they'll see the presence of God amongst us, and they'll fall down and be converted. So it's... It is a tragic error when people read these verses and say, well, we must speak in tongues for unbelievers because Paul says they're a sign. He's saying they're a sign of judgment that means unbelievers walk away blinded and hardened. Much rather we would do what he says in 24, that we would have a church full of clear speaking about God so that unbelievers are convicted of sin and brought under judgment. The secrets of their hearts are laid bare and they fall down and worship God. Isn't that what you want? It's almost too obvious to state. We should love other Christians and we should love those who don't yet know Jesus. And so we want them to understand what we're saying. And that means clear proclamation of God's word. Uh, before we move on to apply this to our own church situation, uh, one other thing is that Christian service may involve not exercising our gifts. Verse 26. What then should we say, brothers and sisters, when you come together, each of you has a hymn, a word of instruction, a revelation, a tongue or an interpretation. Everything must be done so the church may be built up. If anyone speaks in a tongue, two or at the most three should speak, one at a time, with someone to interpret. If no interpreter, the speaker must keep quiet in the church and speak to himself and to God. Two or three prophets should speak, and others should weigh carefully what is said. It may be that we can serve the church best by not exercising our gift, or not exercising it this week. Sometimes we serve best by not doing something. I and mean, if everybody here who could preach a sermon did preach a sermon at the same time, it would be chaos we 'll only do that though if we see that spiritual gifts are not what I need to do to be fulfilled, but what the church needs to be built up. I remember uh, one particular meeting at Christian Union at university it was memorable for a couple of reasons. Um, we were It was that stage for those of a particular vintage when there was a song, um, "I could sing of your love forever." Mm-hmm which uh, the, the praise team at the, at the CU took as a literal prophecy. And after about 25 minutes of repeating the chorus, which sounded suspiciously like I could sing of your love for Trevor, because um, <laughs> we had a very bad sound system. <laughs> and it just went on and on and on. Um, and I remember uh, just about losing the will to live. Um, and um, anyway, halfway through, the, uh, the guy leading said something that was very well-intentioned. It was very well-intentioned, but actually it was very unhelpful. He said, imagine you're in a telephone booth, just you and God, cut off from everybody else. Ignore the others in the room. Just connect with and worship God, however feels best for you. What matters most is that you commune with God. Now, there's a healthiness to what he was saying. We do live our lives before the audience of one. And you and I would live much better if we recognised we should ignore what others think and just worry about what God thinks. But when we gather as church, the very last thing we should do is imagine we're in a phone booth. Actually, we ought to be very aware of the people around us. That's why we gather, is to serve them, to love them. God didn't give me my gifts to just commune with him. He gave me my gifts to serve the others so that we would all commune with him. And the spirit-filled Christian is not the one who asks, is there space in this church for me to exercise my gifts, but are there things in this church that I might be able to help with? Okay, so to apply it to us, how does our emphasis on the Bible fit with this? Because the Bible wasn't mentioned in chapter 14 or chapter 12, was it? Well, firstly, the principle of prophecy is that we prefer the clear proclamation of God's word over unintelligible languages. And the only place that God promises to speak, as we saw yesterday, is the Bible. So we fulfill these verses when we have a heavy emphasis on the Bible, because we love hearing God speak clearly by power, by, by his spirit in a powerful way. So um, that's the first thing to say. The second thing to say is it's not surprising the Bible's not mentioned in these chapters because of when we are. Um, it's assumed prophecy includes the teaching of the Bible in, in Acts 2. But also this is AD 53, maybe AD 55 latest. And so hardly any of the New Testament's been written. Hardly any at all, so it's no surprise that God speaks in lots of um, sort of extra biblical words because there's not there's no New Testament for the church to study. But as the New Testament letters are written to help the churches understand how to live as the people of God um, after Jesus Christ has come, you get very, very little about prophecy. So the later letters of the New Testament are all about Bible, 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 because there's now a whole stack of Paul and Peter's letters and John's letters for the churches to read and study and understand. So 2 Timothy, Titus, 2 Peter, are all about proclaim the Bible, teach scripture. It's just, it's it's a no-brainer, really. At the start, when there's no Bible, you need lots of God speaking and prophetic words outside the Bible. But once you've got Bible, why would you turn from what is clearly and certainly and definitely and authoritative the Word of God, and prefer things that you're not really sure whether the Word of God, they're only accessible to the few who've got those gifts, and even when they come, as these verses tell us, they have to be weighed, and and, uh, was that really the Word of God? I'm not sure. Whereas instead, when we have this, we know it's God speaking. And remember, this isn't second best, it's not a change from God's immediate, intimate, personal voice to dry, dusty, dull words on a page. It's the change from uncertain to certain. The change from accessible only to a few with that gift to accessible to all in his public word. Okay, we're going to apply now, um, finally, uh, and, uh, and then we'll spend some time in groups discussing. What does a spirit-filled church look like? I think there are a couple of things you'll see and a couple of things you won't see. You will see, or rather hear, God's Word, the Bible, being given the central place in the church because we love to hear the Holy Spirit speak. And this is where we know we hear Him. You will hear the Bible taught in a way which is understandable and accessible not only to the church, but to those outside the church as well. I think you're unlikely to hear a five minute drum solo. Uh, on this weekend, because we haven't got a drum kit. Um, but uh, a couple of years ago, I went to another church. You don't want to make a judgment on one visit, but it was a bit odd. The drummer did a massive five-minute drum solo, and it was amazing. And then we were all encouraged to applaud and clap the drummer. And it just felt a little bit odd. Like I said, I don't want to be too harsh on a church at one visit, but it's strange if in a church you hear people talk more about the preacher's gift than the Jesus the preacher is supposed to be talking about. Musicians should strive for excellence, but it's Jesus who's in the spotlight. It's not a performance. None of church should be a performance. All of it should be designed to stir up our love for and appreciation and understanding of God. What you won't see is people jostling for positions showing off and an attitude of, I need to exercise my gifts. What you will see And here is people saying, how can I help? How can I serve? What you can't see is the state of our hearts as we do serve. But in a spirit-filled church, there is a priority of love and a commitment to one another and an expectation that the Holy Spirit will be powerfully active amongst us as his word is proclaimed. What does that look like in practice? That's just words. It means that before church on a Sunday, you and I will pray Because we would long that God would do mighty things in us and in the lives of others. And so we'll pray for other people. It means that I'll come to church, not with a concern primarily for how I will be blessed, encouraged and built up, but with a prayer-fueled commitment to be a blessing and an encouragement to others. And I'll be praying, God, please help me to build up others as I come tonight. Please help me to see those who really need my encouragement tonight. I guess it means that when I can, I'll come early because there might be things that I can help with. I guess it means that uh, there be some times when I'm just broken and busted and just in need of looking after, but on the times when I'm not like that, I guess I'll try and make a a real commitment of looking out for newcomers and welcome them the way I'd love to be welcomed at church. I guess it means that even after a weekend away, if I can, I'll come. Not all of us will be able to come tonight, uh, but if I can, because... Actually, what matters to me most is there are other people who need me, people who miss the weekend and need encouraging. Paul's vision of the Holy Spirit's ministry and a Spirit-filled church is revolutionary. In a culture of individualism, he teaches us to see ourselves as dependent parts of a community. In an X-factor culture where we're all taught that we have and we should seek the place where we can shine, he teaches us that our job is to seek the flourishing of other people and put the spotlight on Christ. The evidence of the Spirit's work amongst us is that you and I forget ourselves. It's not so much that we think less of ourselves, it's that we think of ourselves less and think more of Christ than others. And a church like that is a beautiful thing. It's why church is called the ultimate apologetic. In the face of the intellectual arguments of confident atheists, there is nothing quite like an inexplicably loving, genuine church. It's very hard to mount an intellectual argument against Christianity in the face of that. When I was a, an apprentice at Christchurch Mayfair, we had to clean the church once a week. Um, and thankfully, we were all servant-hearted and we loved doing it. Um, <laughs> uh, it wasn't much fun, to be honest. Uh, but then um, I remember halfway through the apprenticeship, a couple from church came and knocked on the door at the flat. And they're missionary nurses now in Madagascar at a Christian hospital and outreach centre. They lead Bible studies regularly. The guy preaches regularly. They've both got strong Bible teaching gifts. At the time, they were training nurses and doing shift work, and they couldn't really join any of the rosters to serve in normal ways. But they'd heard the church got cleaned once a week, and so they came to knock on the door to say, "Look, there's lots of other stuff we can't do, but as long as you don't mind it being done at a different time during the week each week, would you mind if we cleaned the church?" He had Bible teaching gifts. He didn't come around knock on the door and say, I'd like to be put on the preaching rotor." He came around to say, I heard there was something I need doing. I wonder whether we might do it. That is a couple full of the Holy Spirit. That's the sort of behavior It's hard to explain outside of the Spirit's power. Let's pray. Let's thank God for the gifts he's given us. Let's thank God for the gifts he's given others that help us. Let's pray that God would kill our narcissistic desire to use our gifts to make others think more of us and to fulfill me. Pray that God would uh, kill our self-centered pride when we think we've got no gift and it's not worth bothering. Pray God would give us hearts that long for and that get fulfilled by serving others. Pray we would make our lives about living for others. And in the words of Philippians 1, our passionate concern would be to see others Grow pure and blameless until the day of Christ. That's the hallmark of the Holy Spirit in our church.